Steve Florio of Condé Nast calls, and then I watch the cut of the new commercial I filmed last week for Visa. It gets a big laugh from my staff. I hope the TV audience likes it as much as they do. At first, I thought it might not be so good for my image to be seen in a dumpster scrounging around for my credit card, but I like to expand my range whenever possible, and fortunately, uh, this is only a roll. I do, however, think Visa is a great card to have, or I wouldn't endorse it, especially at this extreme. I take a call from Random House about my new book and tell them I've been able to find the time to work on it. I like writing books, and if I like something, I can find the time for it. They seem to take my word for it, considering I've got a good sales record. We had two book signings last week at Grand Central and at the Borders at Wall Street. The turnout was amazing. I enjoyed meeting the people who showed up. 11.30 a.m. You'd think it was still Monday since another contractor just called me. If you think I make this stuff up about them, you're wrong. And I'm not out to get them. It's just that facts are facts, and what they present to me is another story entirely. I cool down before I blow up by looking out the window and wondering whether I should call Daryl Hammond of Saturday Night Live to fill in for me a while. Kevin Harris comes up to take me down to the set for the new season of The Apprentice. The boardroom was left intact, but the living quarters have been redone. It looks terrific. 12 noon. I go with Brian Boudreau to a meeting at Trump World Tower at the UN Plaza. We also go to the sales office and meet with Elaine Dierotz. I absolutely love this building. Once I walked all the way up, 90 floors, just to get the feel of it when it was completed. That wasn't an unusual occurrence with my buildings. It happens from time to time. Brian, who has been with me for 17 years, will be moving to Las Vegas this summer to be the owner's representative for my new tower there. Brian's been with me long enough to have a terrific eye and insights into everything and everyone, and I'm pleased to make him an executive. 1 p.m. Back in the office, I see Robin eating a great-looking chef salad from the Trump food court downstairs and ask her to order one for me. I start returning calls that came in from my daughter Ivanka, Rick Hilton, and others. Next month is an important event. Ivanka will be graduating from Wharton. Someone once commented that while getting into Wharton isn't easy, getting out is even harder. She got great marks, and I am extremely proud of her. 1.30 p.m. I take a call from Bob Wright. We're on for dinner next week with his beautiful wife, Suzanne. I feel lucky to enjoy the people I do business with, and Bob's a perfect example of that. We discuss Jeff Zucker's comment in the New York Times in which he said, It turns out that the next Friends was not a half-hour scripted comedy. It was The Apprentice. I take a call from Mark Burnett to review the possible task assignments that have been developed so far for the new season of The Apprentice. I've learned that some ideas sound great, but don't translate too well onto the screen. For example, writing a presentation might seem like a good assignment until you realize it's passive, there's not enough action, and it would be boring to film and for the audience to watch. Since we are filming in an exciting place like New York City, locations are also important considerations. The details are myriad concerning this show. 2 p.m. 
Don Jr. and Andy Weiss come in for a meeting. They make a good team, and they're both great workers. I'm not sure which of the two has the messiest office, though. It could be a tie. Laura Cordovano calls in from Trump Park Avenue Sales. All is going well there, and I decide to call Susan James at the Trump International Hotel and Tower Sales Office. I like to check up on every property myself. Sounds like smooth sailing all around. Great properties can make life in the real estate industry a lot more fun for everyone involved. Great markets aren't bad either. Baron Lemke of the Mar-a-Lago Club calls to brief me about the ballroom proceedings and other work being done on that property. We discuss the moldings around the mirrors, and I'll check them out for myself next weekend. 2.30 p.m. Vern Gay, the television critic of Newsday, calls. In one of his stories, he said amazingly nice things about me, including the fact that I'm the greatest star in the history of reality TV. Boxing promoter Don King calls. Don is a real character, whom I have known for a long time. He is a big believer in the look, and every time he sees me, he starts shouting with his magnificent voice, Don, you have the look, you have the look. Well, I agree that Don also has the look. The look certainly does mean something. I speak to Herbert Muchamp of the New York Times, who is doing a review of one of my buildings. Herbert has been very nice to me over the years, and I hope he continues to be. But regardless, he is a truly talented architecture critic and a really great guy. 3 p.m. Bill Rancic, winner of the first season of The Apprentice, is here to visit. My staff greets him warmly, and he makes the rounds of the office to meet all his new colleagues. I think he'll fit in nicely, and we're happy to have him aboard. We have a meeting in my office with Charlie Reese, Russell Flicker, and Don Jr. Charlie oversees the Trump Tower Chicago development. Bill is handling everything well and does not seem to be daunted by the heavy pressure to do a good job. I have to say his focus is impressive, and I hope it stays that way. 3.45 p.m. I make a call to my good friend John Myers of GE. His son was wounded in Iraq, and I want to know how he is doing. John Burke and Scott Butero come in for a meeting, and we are interrupted by a fire drill. Since September 11th, I find that people no longer complain very much about the once inconvenient fire drills. They're very important. John is an executive vice president and treasurer, and Scott is the director of corporate finance and strategic development. Scott is a great young talent who will soon be heading the casino company. We discuss casino operations and refinancing, specifically the Credit Suisse first Boston investment in the proposed recapitalization of the casino companies. It is very interesting. 4.30 p.m. Robert Morgenthau, one of the greatest of the greats, calls. His dedicated work for the Police Athletic League has been ongoing for 40 years now, and he is one of the most respected prosecutors in the history of the American justice system. We will be honoring him at the annual PAL Superstar Dinner at the Pierre Hotel in June, and I am pleased to be the chairman of this event. We are looking to raise $1.7 million for PAL, a record. Bill Clinton, 
will be the presenter. Bill Carter of the New York Times calls to ask me some questions about The Apprentice. Bill is a very talented and respected television reporter who was the first to point out that it was not merely the success of The Apprentice on Thursday nights that was so impressive, but in particular, the tremendous success that The Apprentice had when it was rerun on Wednesday nights and many times on CNBC. Bill felt that without all of these weekly reruns, the numbers on Thursday nights would have been even better, if that is possible. Rick Riley of Sports Illustrated calls, but I don't take his calls. People have told me that Rick is, to put it nicely, not an accurate reporter. And after reading his chapter on me in his book, Who's Your Caddy?, I would actually go one step further and say that he lies. Many of his statements in the chapter about me, at least, were totally false, especially the claim that I go around calling everybody baby. The rest is too trivial to mention. But even though Rick, for the purpose of his book, was supposed to be my caddy, I talked him into a match with me. Rick is a good golfer, a five handicap, but he had a bad day. We played with no strokes, and at the end of nine holes, he was nine down. And at the end of 18 holes, he was 14 down. Rick told me it was the worst beating he had ever had, and I told him there was no way he would mention this in his book. He said, no, Donald, I will indeed mention it. I got creamed. I again reiterated that you will never say how badly you lost. In the end, he made reference to losing, but nothing like what really happened that day. Only the caddies and my staff know for sure. Well, at least Rick said that Trump National Golf Club in Westchester is a great course. I have a feeling I won't be playing with Rick again. I decided to take a walk down the hall to visit Jeff McConney and Eric Sacher. On the way, I see George Ross, so we have a short conversation and he tells me that eating lunch downstairs at the Trump Grill can sometimes be a lively event now that people recognize him from the show. George can handle it, and sometimes he even smiles at people. I receive a copy of an article by writer and editor Patricia Baldwin, who interviewed me for Private Clubs magazine. She begins the article with a quote from Baseball Hall of Famer Dizzy Dean. It ain't bragging if you can back it up. Her conclusion, I'm not a braggart, just incredibly good at my job. Patricia spent a day with me while I visited my golf course in Palos Verdes, California. 5.15 p.m. I take a look around my office and realize I should try to downsize some of the piles of papers. So Norma comes in and we start sorting and sifting. We end up with shorter piles, but more of them. It's a start. I can actually see people on the other side of my desk now. Norma tells me that since her appearance on the show, people have stopped her on the street and in restaurants and even on the bus for an autograph. Our lives have definitely changed. I get a call from Bob Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots. When Bob bought the Patriots, they were a disaster. And now they're the best team in football and the Super Bowl champions. Bob is an extraordinary man who has done an extraordinary job and has the best quarterback in football, Tom Brady, who was also a friend of mine. 
I review the faxes of the afternoon, decide whether or not I have time to accept public speaking engagements, and look through photographs for a magazine request. Considering that taping for the new season of The Apprentice will start up in less than 10 days, we have to be careful about the time I have for activities not directly involved with my business at the Trump Organization. I'm not playing hard to get. I just have to keep my priorities in order. Norma knows how to handle my schedule and decline invitations thoughtfully, and that's one reason why she's a great gatekeeper. My son Eric calls. He'll be attending Ivanka's graduation from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania next month, along with everyone else in the family. 6 p.m. Jay Beanstalk and Kevin Harris come by to go over some more ideas for the tasks for the candidates for The Apprentice. This step is an important part of the show, and I like being actively involved with the decisions. Also, it helps that I am a native New Yorker and know the territory well. We spend an hour or so going over a lot of details and thinking through a few possibilities. 7 p.m. George Steinbrenner calls. No matter who I might be with, if they hear George is on the phone, they are impressed. He is a true winner, and he is always like a jolt of adrenaline. I love George and his winning way. I'm ready for a busy night in New York City, so I call it a day and go home. Wednesday, 8 a.m. I decided to come down a little early today to catch up on some of my mail. Here's a letter from a high school student in Wichita, Kansas, who writes, Although your story of business success is inspiring, I have another more unusual reason for making you my hero. You live richly. Although it may sound strange, I'm tired of the people that truly do something to earn their fortune sitting around on it without using it. Finally, in you, we have found a man that lives richly. That's a nice comment, but actually, I lead a much more simple life than people would believe. But I don't want to disappoint this young man. Here's a letter from a guy who remembers my father helping him change a flat tire when he was a young man in Queens. He now makes documentary films and wrote to tell me he will never forget my father's kindness. Neither will I. 8.15 a.m. My first phone call comes in from Paul Spangler of Pebble Beach. It's 5.15 in the morning in California, and he's already up and at it. My kind of guy. Norma comes in to tell me of her meeting with Random House about the three-book gift set being planned for the Christmas holidays. We have to think ahead these days. Richard Lefrac comes in to view the construction on his building from my office, which directly faces it. The curtain wall he is erecting now looks perfect. He's another guy I like doing business with, and our meetings are always lively and fun. Richard mentions that my office seems a little cluttered, so I show him Norma's office and our small conference room, both of which are completely covered with bins of fan mail, proposals, and letters that we haven't been able to get to yet. We've been receiving up to 20 bins of mail a day, and we've had to hire six people just to sort it all. So I start a little earlier each day, as do a lot of us here. In showing Richard our offices and what's been happening here, I notice most people are already here, and our day doesn't officially have to start until 9 a.m. 
We're all trying to keep up. 8.45 a.m. I go downstairs with Richard to show him the set and living quarters of The Apprentice. The new Apprentice candidates are due to arrive in less than a week, and it's looking good. 9.15 a.m. The calls have begun, so I begin to return them. Jerry Schrager, Tom Benison, Lee Rinker. Lee is a golf pro at Trump International Golf Club in Palm Beach, and I enjoy talking about the game with him. He's explaining how a winner's strategy will include losing, and the greats will have a contingency plan close at hand. There's a reason golf is known as a brain game. 9.45 a.m. Rona comes in to remind me that I have a lunch with Steve Florio at the Four Seasons today. Seldom do I go out to lunch, but Steve is a friend and the former president and CEO of Condé Nast Publications, and I like the guy a lot. Going to the Four Seasons with Steve is always fun and interesting. We cover a lot of territory when we get together, from cross-promoting to publishing to fragrances. Steve is up on everything and has worked with one of the most interesting and brilliant men in business today, S.I. Newhouse. Jim Dowd of NBC calls in to chat. After the media blitz of the past few weeks, we feel like we're having a mini vacation from each other. Jim is one of those people who is extremely efficient, yet easy to work with, an ideal business associate. Matthew Calamari and his brother Mike come in for a meeting, and I ask Andy Weiss and Don Jr. to join us. We are still fine-tuning Trump Park Avenue. Putting up the front entrance canopy is a big deal if you're on Park Avenue, and we are using a steel-reinforced structure. A work of beauty deserves our total attention. And this building, which has turned out to be a great success, gets it. 10.30 a.m. Melania calls to see if we're still on for the Broadway opening of Bombay Dreams coming up in a couple of weeks. We are, and we've decided to go to Da Silvano, a great Italian restaurant in the village, afterward for dinner. We try to plan ahead as much as possible. Jason Bin, the publisher of Gotham, calls, and we discuss what's happening on both coasts. Then I read a thank-you note from Mark Cuban regarding his show, The Benefactor. This note was published on the web. He mentions that our encounters proved to be a reality check for me because he realized he would never want to be like me. But then I asked myself, why did he buy an apartment in one of my buildings with my name on it? I think it's strange that he's trying to take me on just to get some publicity for his show but he's actually a nice guy, and I hope his show will be more successful than his basketball team. Besides, he has no chance of beating The Apprentice. Kevin Harris comes in for a meeting about my schedule for the second season of The Apprentice. I have another week off, and then it all begins again. I tell Kevin he's a real pain in the ass, but that I've gotten used to him. He's also gotten used to me, so I can tell him that. He laughs and leaves. 11.15 a.m. Jeff McConney comes in to go over some license issues, followed by Eric Sacher, who updates me on the financials of Trump model management. Then I ask Bernie Diamond to come in to review a list of projects, followed by Nathan Nelson, who gives me the latest on our commercial leasing. These guys stay on top of things and are fast at giving me what I need to know. Alan Weisselberg, chief financial officer, comes in to go over sales and acquisition of properties 
and we do a general overview. Alan's been with me for 30 years and knows how to get things done. Then Jason Greenblatt briefs me on The Apprentice. Six important meetings in 45 minutes isn't a record, but it's a good indication of how we operate here. 12 noon. I call Mark Burnett to go over a few things. Just because we had one successful season doesn't mean we can take it easy. We are talking about the dynamics of the boardroom scenes, which were the highlight of our episode so far. We are wondering whether we should expand them or keep them tight and fast like last season. We decide to see how they play out naturally and take it from there. It's a realistic approach. Mark is an amazing guy, a good friend and a true visionary. He said my first book, The Art of the Deal, had a great influence on him, and here I am, writing a book 16 years later and mentioning him. The American Dream. Anyway, back to our boardroom scenes. Sometimes I schedule an hour for a meeting and find it takes no more than 10 minutes. Or just the opposite. It will take two hours instead of one. Some things can't be predicted, and as the show is unscripted, that's part of the excitement. Mark's a busy guy, too, and we connect quickly on every issue. He keeps his momentum going, much like I do, which I think is a common denominator in successful people. Jeff Zucker calls in, and we discuss the ratings. This year, ABC had the Academy Awards, CBS had the Super Bowl, and NBC had The Apprentice. It's still hard to believe that The Apprentice is one of the most successful shows in television history. I take a call regarding the announcement of my syndicated radio show on Clear Channel, which is to begin in the fall. I've always enjoyed radio programs and have been almost a regular on Howard Stern's and Don Imus's shows over the years. This will be something new and another challenge. I'm looking forward to it. To find time in my schedule, Clear Channel has agreed to record my programs in my office on a weekly basis. I read so many papers and magazines each week that I will never be at a loss for topics, and I will choose to talk about whatever interests me that week. It will be a form of public speaking without the hassle of travel. The 60 to 90 second daily pieces will soon turn out to be the biggest launch of a new show in the history of radio, which is really cool. 12.30 p.m. I decide to go over to Trump Place on the Hudson River. New York City can be so spectacular in the spring. I can't think of a more beautiful place than this today. Even the river is sparkling. Paul Davis escorts me around, and the work is going terrifically. Waiting for 20 years to see something come to fruition definitely adds an aura to a project. 1.45 p.m. Back in the office, I begin returning calls and ask for lunch from the new Trump Grill which is fast becoming one of the best and most popular restaurants in New York. Norma comes in to go over some upcoming events and business proposals. One lady has written in to ask that I pay for her breast implants to go along with my credo to think big. Just when you think you've heard them all. 2.15 p.m. I have a meeting with architect Andrew Tesoro and Andy Weiss regarding the new clubhouse I'm building at Trump National Golf Club at Briarcliff Manor. We call Carolyn Kepcher to discuss a few things. 
2.45 p.m. Steve Wynn of Las Vegas calls. He'll be in New York next week, and we will catch up. He's been interested in The Apprentice, so I tell him a bit about the new season. Then Regis calls. I will be doing a phone interview on Live with Regis and Kelly tomorrow morning about some big news that I have. Right now, it's a secret. I take a call from Tony Senecal, my fantastic butler and historian at Mar-a-Lago. Melania and I will be going down to Florida next weekend. Billy Bush from Access Hollywood calls, so I talk to him for a while. We all thought there might be a slight media break after the final episode of The Apprentice, but we were wrong. Not that I mind, as I like a lot of the media people we deal with very much. Billy, for example. But their interest in the show still surprises me. I haven't really adjusted to being a TV star yet. For example, one day when I was going to NBC to rehearse Saturday Night Live, I walked into the building with Brian, and there were lines of people behind ropes waiting for the NBC tour. Our page was not there to guide us to the elevators yet, so I was face-to-face -face with about 200 people who were surprised to see me just standing there. They stared at me in silence, and then our page arrived to direct us to the correct elevator. The silence continued until I got into the elevator, and as the doors were closing, a lady yelled out, Hi, Mr. Trump, you're fired! and everybody else started to scream wildly. I managed to wave back before the doors shut. A funny moment. Since The Apprentice started airing, I'm often greeted with a friendly, you're fired, by people who see me on the street or in a restaurant. Who would have ever believed that phrase would be a replacement for, hi, how you doing? 3.15 p.m. Don Jr. and Charlie Reese come in for a meeting, during which I take a call from my daughter Ivanka. Someday she'll be in on these meetings, too. Norma comes in to go over requests for speaking engagements. I'll be doing one for Patty Gilles in June, but have to keep these at a minimum for a while. 4 p.m. Don Thomas is here for a visit. It's always nice to see him. Then I sit in on a meeting in the large conference room with Jill Kremer, Russell Flicker, Don Jr., and Charlie Reese. My boardroom is really beautiful. It's an elegant room with perfect lighting. I think people function and think clearly just as well in a well-appointed room as in an overlit and badly decorated one. Business people should think about interiors when they design their offices. Some that I visited are so dreadful that the only thing I could think of was how to get out of them as soon as possible, and I can imagine their employees may have felt the same way. 4.30 p.m. I call Melania, and we confirm dinner plans with Regis and Joy at Jean-Georges for tonight. Rona comes in with some faxes, and I begin to return calls that came in during the meeting. One of the contractors has called back several times, but I just won't deal with him yet. There's a difference between can't deal with and won't deal with. Contractors definitely get the latter until they shape up, but as for the good ones, I adore them and treat them the best. 5.15 p.m. I review documents and reports and ask that my calls be held except for urgent ones. George Ross comes in and we review a few things together. 6 p.m. 
I ask Robin for my calls and return them and take a call from Kevin Cook of Golf Magazine. We'll be playing a round of golf together next month at Trump National Briarcliff Manor, a course that Golf Magazine really likes. 6.30 p.m. I say goodnight to Norma and Robin and notice that seven or eight more bins of mail have arrived from the afternoon mail sorting. We'll have to figure this out tomorrow. Thursday, 8.30 a.m. I have a meeting with Bernie Diamond, general counsel regarding Trump, the game, being developed with big monster toys and Hasbro. We have a productive meeting for about half an hour, and then I return a call to Jean-Pierre Trebeau, the executive director of the New York Friars Club. I'll be the guest of honor for their celebrity roast in October, and we discuss a few matters. 9 a.m. I have a phone interview with Regis announcing my engagement to my girlfriend of five years, Melania Canals. We are both extremely happy being together, and I am fortunate to have her in my life. 9.30 a.m. I do a video in the small conference room from my casino in Indiana. I return calls to Bob Dowling, Sandy Morehouse, and Vinny Stelio, who is in charge of many of my projects and is doing a great job. I also talk to Richard LaFrac. Richard's got the kind of eye that notices everything. Some people come in to discuss the leather-bound editions of my books, which are in the works now. I also go over my travel plans for the next few weeks, which have to be worked out around my schedule for The Apprentice. I take a call about my new hotel condominium tower going up in Chicago. Considering that it is scheduled to open in 2007 and that it's 60% sold already, I'd say we've received a warm welcome from the Windy City. Chicago's a great place. 10.30 a.m. I take a call from Alphonse Schmidt of Palm Beach, and then Chris Devine, chef at Trump Tower Grill and Trump Tower Food Court, comes in for a meeting. I will tell you one of the best-kept secrets in New York City. His DT Burger is the best burger in town. It has portobello mushrooms, grilled onions, and Swiss cheese. Try one at the Trump Tower Grill and you'll agree. Everything else is great, too, but the burger is my favorite item. I'll be having one for lunch tomorrow. The atrium with the waterfall is also a terrific backdrop for a midtown meal. Check it out once, and you'll be back for more. Mohammed Al-Fayed calls in, so I take his call. It's a pleasure to talk to him. He's calling to congratulate me and Melania on our engagement. Stuart Rahr calls in to tell me he's having lunch delivered for my entire staff today as an engagement celebration because now they'll have an even happier boss. He's right. 11 a.m. I leave to go to Trump National Golf Club in Briarcliff Manor to check out the course and clubhouse. We are ready for the new season, so I want to make a property check myself. Carolyn Kepcher and Vinnie Stelio will meet us. It's another wonderful spring day, and these kinds of trips are one of the many pleasurable aspects of my job. 11.45 a.m. Why not? I'll play a round of golf with John Spitalny, and in doing so, do a thorough property check. This course is a beauty 
all the way. My game's getting there, too. I take it as seriously as I can, considering my schedule. I notice a few things on the property that need to be improved. Notes are taken, and I'm sure things will be taken care of promptly. This is a good operation. I have a chat with Carrie Stefan, our golf pro, and then it's time to go. 4 p.m. I'm back in the office at Trump Tower, where I return some calls. I speak to the very talented Richard Johnson of the New York Post and Sean McCabe, a young man who has been with me for a long time and is doing a superb job of maintaining and building additions to Mar-a-Lago. 5 p.m. Kevin Harris shows up with yet another monster schedule for me to review. I try to keep the don't kill the messenger proverb in my mind as I go over it with him. This guy doesn't stop. He must have been trained by Mark Burnett. Good thing I'm such an easygoing guy. Someone tells me David Letterman said on his show, Donald Trump is the biggest star in America, and he won't do my show, but I like him anyway. David's a good guy, always has been, always will be. He's just on the wrong network, that's all. But I'm going to do his show anyway. I call Melania to see what we're doing this evening, and it looks like it will be Le Cirque. I call in Charlie Reese to go over some development ideas. Charlie can be blunt. Just ask Amy of The Apprentice, so we get along just fine. He never wastes my time. I appreciate Charlie's ability to quickly size things up and deliver the goods. 7 p.m. I check in with Matt Calamari and some others who are still working and go upstairs. Friday, 8.15 a.m. Norma and I have a meeting about how to handle the huge amounts of mail we have been receiving. Now I know how publishers or movie companies must feel about submissions and why they have rules about it. We can hardly walk through our offices anymore, and she shows me where an extra 10 or 12 bins have been stored. 8.45 a.m. I take a call from Bernd Lemke about being in Palm Beach for Mother's Day. That marks the end of the season there for us, and it's always a big day. I'm not big on melancholy, but it's a day for fond memories of my mother, and it deserves a celebration. I call my sister Mary Ann to see if her offer for a home-cooked meal tonight is still on. It is. Not only is she smart, she is a great cook. 9 a.m. I have a meeting with Tom Kaufman, Alan Weisselberg, and George Ross. We cover a lot of territory in less than 30 minutes. 9.30 a.m. I speak to Bill Fiervanti, who is Paul Anka's tailor. Paul has offered to have a tailored suit made for me. A nice gesture from a nice guy. The suit is great. I talked to Paula Shugard and Tony Santamaro about the upcoming Miss Universe pageant in Ecuador. The buzz is huge there. I'll be flying down for the event in between my apprentice assignments. Speaking of which, here are Jay Beanstalk and Kevin Harris at my door. Why did Mark have to hire such efficient guys? At least they know how to give efficient meetings, and we're through in 15 minutes. 10 a.m. I call Sean Compton, Vice President and National Program Coordinator for Clear Channel, regarding my radio program. 
and Rona comes in to advise me of an upcoming photo shoot with Scott Duncan. Not my favorite thing, but I like Scott a lot, so it shouldn't be too painful. I read a few letters. There's one from a young lady in Arizona who writes, Finally, a reality show that is as captivating as it is compelling. Maybe it's because I have a degree in business and a law degree, or maybe it's because of your no-nonsense approach to dealing with people. Thank you for allowing the viewing public to be a part of this experience. I'm glad to know people are enjoying the show as much as I am. I make a call to Paul Chapman and ask for a Diet Pepsi. Norma comes in to remind me of the Damon Runyon cancer breakfast at the Rainbow Room later this month, honoring the great Bob Wright of NBC and few other engagements. 10.30 a.m. I have a meeting with Bernie Diamond, general counsel, and then Costas Condilis arrives for a meeting. I asked Don Jr. to come in, and we have a discussion about contractors. So I call one, and sure enough, he's at least $100,000 over the amount that is necessary to do the job. After I finish talking to him, he's down to a reasonable price, $100,000 less than he had originally figured. Need I say more? 10.45 a.m. I take a call from John Stark of Stark Carpet and talk to Bernd Lemke regarding the weekend at the Mar-a-Lago Club. I'm happy to report that work on this incredible place will never end. I am now building what will soon become the finest ballroom facility in the United States. I call Tony Senecal to go over a few things. I take a call from David Hockman of Playboy about an interview in May and have a meeting in the large conference room with my development team to go over plans and see what's in the works. Part of being a good builder is planning into the future, which is one reason I enjoy these meetings so much. A room with blueprints equals a room with a lot of action in the works. 11.45 a.m. I go down with a group of Wall Street bankers to show them the new suite for the 18 new apprentice applicants. They agree that it looks great, and I realize I'm looking forward to having another group of enthusiastic young people to work with. The boardroom looks ready for another dynamic season. We go down to the atrium level. A few people wave and say, You're fired! I take a tour through the beautiful new space occupied by Asprey, the famed jewelers, which covers three floors in the front of Trump Tower. When you see the British flag flying next to the American flag on 56th and 5th Avenue, it's because of Asprey. They are the jewelers to the royal family and many other people of discerning taste. As I pass through reception back to my office, I stop to ask Georgette how she's doing her first week back at work. Very well. She's a trooper. 12.15 p.m. I return the calls that have come in and call Tiffany in California for an update. George Ross comes in for a meeting, and we discuss a few things pertinent to the new season of The Apprentice, as well as business issues. Andy Weiss, Bernie Diamond, and Alan Weisselberg also come in for meetings. I take a call from Rudy Giuliani regarding a dinner together, and I talk to Random House about a sales conference where I will appear. I told Random House that I wanted to give readers everything needed to be successful in life in fewer than 300 pages. That's a challenge, and I like to challenge myself as much as possible. But my books aren't strictly educational. They might become less interesting if they were one-dimensional.
Robin comes in to remind me of the Police Athletic League Board of Directors meeting next week, and we discuss some invitations and business proposals that have come up. Here's someone who wants to build a tower on top of Trump Tower with me after hearing the idea on Saturday Night Live. I seriously doubt if this guy knows that SNL is a comedy show and he's decided he's my new partner because he also likes chicken wings. We couldn't make these things up if we tried. In fact, if the Saturday Night Live writing team ever runs out of ideas, they should come over here for a day or so and just read my mail. 1 p.m. I take a call from Wagner College in Staten Island. I will be receiving an honorary doctorate degree in May. Certainly an honor. Dr. Trump. Sounds good to me. It's surprising what a few days of honest reflection and number crunching can do. Because one of the contractors from earlier this week calls back and finds he can do the job easily for $150,000 less than he'd originally thought. I figured as much, and that's why I finally took the call. I take a call from Vinny Stelio, who is checking out the golf course development and construction at Trump National Los Angeles. We are building a truly great course there. I make a call to my brother Robert to see what's up. He'll be going to London next week. I tell Bobby Hollywood, one of my bodyguards, that I want to take a walk over to Trump Park Avenue. These days, that can be quite an adventure, but he's up to it. 1.45 p.m. I arrive at Trump Park Avenue. The lobby looks great, but I want the doormen to be wearing white gloves. After all, this is Park Avenue. I notice some of the woodwork is off kilter in one of the elevators. I ask that it be fixed immediately and that they take the elevator out of service until it is. I have an eye for little things which can either amaze people or irritate them, depending on the circumstances. I do a property check, and it's looking good overall, although not perfect. So we go over a few things that need attention. I always pretend that I'm a tenant in all of my buildings. What things would bother me if I were? First of all, everything has to shine. Otherwise, it just looks lousy. The lobby and the halls have to be in mint condition at all times. All the fixtures should be polished and lit, and the carpeting has to look brand new, always. Run down anything looks run down, and run down is not acceptable, ever. Most landlords wouldn't want a tenant like me, but that's why most tenants want a landlord like me. Being a perfectionist works to their benefit. 3 p.m. Robin has my messages waiting, so I return 10 or 12 calls that have come in and review notes from a meeting regarding 40 Wall Street, my jewel of a building in the financial district. Downtown has made a good rebound. As I told the New York Post, even 9-11 couldn't put a permanent dent in that place. Carolyn Capture calls in. We go over some notes I made yesterday about Trump National Briarcliff during my round of golf and afternoon on the grounds. Once the season at Palm Beach winds down, I'm on the course a lot in Westchester, and we are constantly fine-tuning everything. 3.30 p.m. I have a meeting with Charlie Reese and Bill Ransick concerning the Chicago Tower. We go over some brochures for the building. 
We discussed the Las Vegas tower and being planned. I will be building a luxury condominium mixed-use tower there with Phil Ruffin, one of the greatest guys I know. So I'll be flying out there for a quick visit within the next couple of weeks. You can see why having a jet is a necessity in my life. I call Katie Couric to congratulate her on the great job she did for the colon cancer benefit on the Queen Mary II. She raised $5 million for this important cause, and she's a great lady. Even if she did have Harry Connick Jr. fire me after my duet with him, I'll try to forgive her, but only because I like her so much. 4 p.m. Norma comes in with a stack of letters and proposals to go over. She says I cringe when I see her come in. She's become the homework queen in my eyes, and she knows it. Random House calls to tell me they've sold the rights to How to Get Rich to publishers in 21 foreign countries. A friend of mine told me his son of 16 read it three times and wants to run his own organization as a result of it. Now he even reads financial magazines and papers every day, his favorite being the Wall Street Journal. I liked what I was hearing. I call my son Eric to see what he's got planned for the weekend. He says, studying. But somehow I think otherwise. Not that he isn't a good student, he definitely is, but he's an outdoor type and has a lot of activities that interest him. All of my children are very well balanced as far as being hard workers, and they are disciplined people, so I never have to worry about them too much. 4.45 p.m. Rona comes in to give me my latest faxes and messages. I call Steve Wynn and tell him I'll be visiting soon, and I call John Myers, then Mark Brown. Mike Vandergoes calls in from California, and Paula Shugart calls in about an interview for a magazine in Ecuador. And, of course, another one of those contractors from earlier in the week calls in with radically altered prices for his services. Why are certain things so predictable? Anyway, it's nice when they become so agreeable. Another word for reasonable in this case. 5.30 p.m. I sign a few books to be sent out to friends and colleagues, make a few final calls, and Alan Weisselberg stops by for a few minutes on his way out. It's been a good week. In fact, a milestone week for me. And we're all looking forward to the weekend. 6.30 p.m. I turn out my lights and head upstairs. I'm looking forward to some golf this weekend, and we'll be staying in town. We need a weekend just to relax, which means we may visit Atlantic City tomorrow night by helicopter, check the course in Bedminster, New Jersey on Sunday, and have dinner at the 21 Club tonight. This weekend will be relatively quiet for us. Trump Tower is a great home base. <laughs>